Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, writer Tom Schoen. He's film critic for the Sunday Times, but he's just written a new book on Christopher Nolan, The Nolan Variations. It's, uh, as far as I can tell, it's the first uh, book with Christopher Nolan's actual participation. It's an interesting mix of biography, filmic analysis, interview book, and essay. It's a, it's a great read, and it's great to have him on the show. Uh, but first up, what I watched this week, uh, if you guys listened to last week's episode, and witnessed um, te- uh, frequent co-host Ted Haycraft scoffing at me having Bill and Ted high on my top 10 list. So first off, I should mention that I have since amended my top 10 list, as is going to happen going into uh, the new year. We mentioned on the episode, it's going to, being in a small market, it's going to last till February. We're going to keep changing as we see more stuff. There's there's actually, this year, still screeners we haven't seen. Somehow, 20, like, 2020 is still weirdly a normal year. But since recording last week's episode, uh, there was one movie I'd seen at the time that I just forgot about. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Which, it was one of those Sundance movies that hits everybody's radar in January and come the end of the year still is is worthwhile which in 2020 is a nice surprise because since Sundance felt like the only normal film part of the year I but I did make sure to watch one of the two movies Ted mentioned besides uh, I'm thinking of ending things uh, that he thought was the only worthwhile movies this year the significant ones for him number ones uh, Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor now I haven't seen Brandon Cronenberg's first movie anti-viral but I gotta give this one to Ted he called it this was deeply interesting movie um it's there's there's a little bit of his father in there i i disagreed with ted that it's very much his father but on a basic level this this movie has this great casting coup of christopher abbott and uh andrew reisenborough like two of just some of our best actors both in one movie and there's there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on in the movie i won't lie and pretend that i was totally with it but and then added to that, The Assistant, uh, Kitty Green's movie that is ex- ex- excessively vignette uh, which I found interesting. Has a, like, I did have that vibe that if a guy had directed this, people would have been calling it more visionary. But uh, there's also just on a personal level, anyone who's worked in the film industry, there, there, was, there was a lot of PTSD in the movie especially towards the end there's a sequence where she misunderstood stands from her boss whether or not she can go home and it it was the most it was the most intense sequence i saw all this year but i'll try to keep this intro short since we have a, a great interview with tom Schoen coming up uh one other irony i wanted to point out that it, there's also a deep dive into just a lot of my overall views on nolan's movies my love of them but at a certain point I start to get into uh, the level of clarity of his dialogue and his audio clips, which anyone who's listened to any of these episodes of the podcast will know, uh, don't throw rocks if you have glass houses. So um, enjoy the show and its audio quality.
you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so what what is are are what is your background? Where how where what places have you lived in? Uh, well, you moved around to. Yeah, I was in sort of London. Uh, I mean, I I started reviewing um, movies in the '90s for the Sunday Times in London, the newspaper. Okay. And I came out to New York in '99, um, and so I've been in America since '99. Um, and and but I'm still writing for the Sunday Times back home, if you know what I mean. So yeah, uh, okay. Uh, so my kind of my right my journalistic career is in London. Being out here, it means I get I can get access to people and interview people, and you know uh, that's how the that's how most of the the books I've written have come about. Anyway, I I asked because I I for some reason I assumed there was an LA period just because you met your first meeting with Christopher Nolan was at Cantor's in LA. Oh yeah, that was just actually that was just a sort of journalistic assignment. Like when I that was for um, when I first came out here uh, was for a magazine called Talk Magazine, and okay. they they had lots of money because they had Harvey Weinstein um, bankrolling it, and. Uh, uh, and so they were spending his money like Billio, and they would send us everywhere. It was like the last days of like journalistic sort of splendor, you know, like it was the last great magazine opening. And of course it folded and then that was the end of that era. And, mm-hmm. um, but for a while they were sort of sending us everywhere on, you know, um, uh, I mean, I remember they, they had like kind of, we would go out to LA for like a part, they had a party. I mean, now I'm as, I'm as, you know, it's writing is, is, is a, I mean, it's gone through the, it's, 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 you know, it's been hammered, but, um, and journalism in particular has been hammered, but it, right, I look back on that time and it's just like, God, they were like, they, they were sending us to, we would get on planes to go to parties. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I hear about it from you guys as vantage points. I, it's completely wholly unfamiliar to me, or it just seems distant to all these internet journalists working right now. Um, so, uh, how, what what was the um, genesis for starting the book? Was it just you had interviewed him a few times over the year, and you had the relationship with Christopher Nolan through that? Yeah, I sort of met him in ninety no two thousand, just on the eve of Memento coming out. Um, okay, uh, I know that was the interview I did for Talk Magazine, and then, I mean, that was really it. I mean, our, uh, you know, our, our friendship or association or whatever you want to call it has really kind of. Uh, it really took place professionally. Like it was, I would meet him, I met him again um, to write something about Interstellar. And then again, for when Dunkirk came out and each time I would kind of petition him to, to, you know, collaborate on a book. And then, and he would generally say no and plead off and say, I haven't made enough movies yet. And then, um, you know, and then finally he had made enough movies. You know, I I think Dunkirk was kind of it. Um, I think it wasn't, was it 10 movies i think it was that was his 10th and so for some reason that just felt like you know he'd done this kind of big second world war movie he'd reached a certain point in his career and maybe he felt like it was time for a retrospective so that's i think why he you know uh why he agreed to do it but um but yeah so i i you know i know knew him professionally really um okay well, with, I mean, when we exchanged emails earlier, I was telling you how, like, it felt like, right, that someone needs to write a good book on him right now, and you were you were feeling a great market need. But I was thinking about it also, like, I see his point that he's, like, 
you, you talk a lot in the book about his streak. Like he's had that commercial critical streak that hasn't been broken. You compare it to like um, David Lane and Hitchcock. And, um, and it's almost like a lot of these books have to be written to have an arc to them where there is a fall or a return and no one hasn't technically really had that yet, really. I mean, unless, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about Tenet for in depth, I think, in this episode of down the line, because it seems to have come up multiple times on this show, but the book, you, I mean, you found a narrative arc into it. Like it, it just, the, the digressions alone were just so entertaining in the book. And you you got really into his uh, influences and you managed to make an, a narrative out of his influences, how they kept and his development as an artist too. Wow. It's, it was, um, are you familiar with, uh, uh, the, uh, books of Jeff Dyer? Yes. Yeah. It reminded me, it felt like a Jeff Dyer book with an interview. Into oh, it. thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, you know, uh, it, I was, um, that's, it's nice of you to say, I mean, the, the, it really came because, uh, it was an attempt to solve the problem that he didn't want a biography. So the book mm. wasn't going to have a biographical subject by, you know, like, you know, it was a, it was, but you did not, sneak some, a lot of biography. Yeah, in. There was, yeah. was going to be a biographical chapter, but throughout, I wasn't going to get that third person, you know, narrative where it's, it, you know, it was a fraught Nolan who saw in the new year on 2011. You know what I mean? Like that, mm. he isn't going to appear as a, he didn't want to be objectified as a kind of character, you know, in the way that um, biographies do. Um, so I had to sort of find another way to kind of, A, you know, get into the films, but also, you know, give the reader a sense of proximity to him. Um, and, you know, so his influences struck me as being the thing that I was, I was certainly struck by, like how varied, uh, they were, um, you know, from the first moment I met him, I sort of thought, God, it's so strange. This guy is sort of into, you know, Borges, the Argentinian uh, poet. It just, that's not a name you would find in Hollywood. That surprised me a lot too, but yeah. it made sense after the fact. And so that immediately interested me that his interests were so out of the way. They weren't usual. And, um, and also I kind of came to realize that they actually were quite personal and that if I pursued those, especially the bigger ones like kind of Borges and Chandler, they actually kind of brought me closer to him. So even though Nolan wasn't going to be in the book and I wasn't going to be psychoanalyzing him, nonetheless, if you kind of look into any of those 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 other influences, especially the bigger ones, is that there's always some kind of chord it strikes with his own story, his own upbringing and his own um, biography. I mean, in Borges's case, it was the fact that he was moved around so much um, you know, in Chandler's case, it was the fact that he went to this a similar type of school. I mean, so in American, a way, England part two. Yeah. And that kind of gave me the confidence to sort of go, well, if I go down the rabbit hole with some of these, you know, more digressive elements with the with the secondary cast of characters that I would be rejoining with him at some point. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that sort of but it definitely took a while for me to realize that. And I, you know, it took me a while to figure out what it was going to, you know, how it was going to read. Um you know, because he didn't want a biography and I didn't want um, a book of interviews per se, you know, cute. Mm, yeah, no, I, I get that. It was funny because I watched uh, Interstellar yesterday and I remember thinking that the book was an extension of Murph's library shelf. Yeah. Which the book seemed to be a lot of his influence. I remember uh, immediately after 
or a few weeks after seeing Interstellar for the first time, that was when I finally made the full commitment to dive into the LA Quartet because I recognized the big nowhere on the shelf at the key scene. Mm. Um, but I mean, you, you also, I mean, you, you do, you do try to resist the psychoanalysis, but you illuminate his childhood in a way I don't think anyone's illuminated before or really talked in depth about. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I mean, it was always going to have a kind of brief biographical chapter at the beginning. Um, And, you know, he wasn't that keen on it, but I, you know, persuaded him that the book needed it. Um, uh, And, you know, I found it pretty interesting. I mean, I found generally that there were more connections there between his, particularly his kind of adolescence and, you know, and the movies that he makes. And he sort of resisted it. You know, he's not that that keen on that angle. And it was mostly, so really what appears in that chapter is just sort of, you know, uh, our kind of compromise where, you know, the amount of detail that he could live with, um, you know, uh, and, you know, me sort of being, you know, respectful in the, the connections that I made and sort of not kind of going completely overboard. I mean, it's it was possible for me to have written a much more kind of um, psychoanalytic book. Um, but I weirdly, I found that it didn't, as much as I was keen on that, because he was not that, he, because he wasn't, unless I was going to turn that conflict into the sort of the main event of the book, it wasn't going to get me very far. And the more I kind of went down that road, the less it seemed to belong in this book. So it was weird. I, you know, I actually felt like in the end I was doing, like, I sort of think that, you know, if a biographer was, was to come along, they would be able to kind of use the book as a kind of roadmap, you know, um, like it's all there. Um, but I wasn't going to be the one that sort of spelt out this or that connection. Well, I, I mean, I think it ended up being the best of both worlds because there's like a lot of the psychoanalysis is going to end up being kind of, especially if you're limited to certain interviews, like it's not, it's going to feel a little dime store after a certain point. And, but at the same time, if you actually illuminate instances of his life and um, I, I, my favorite one was the way you compared the, um, the, uh, the place where the, all the heist members from inception slept to his, uh, dorm or the dorm he had at school, at boarding school or whatever, not boarding school, but that was one. And you had the pictures like yeah, that was yeah. a really neat. neat I mean, one. I must admit, like when I saw that picture of the dorm, I thought, God, I'm, that seems familiar to me. You know, like I've seen yeah. that. Um, and it's not because I've slept in a dorm and it's not because I've been to boarding school. It's just because I've seen enough of his movies in which that repeated form with converging lines towards the horizon line, you know, parallel lines, low ceiling, you know, like I've seen that many, many times in his films, not just in Inception actually, but like, you know, the Wayne boardroom in, you know, the, the Batman movies and um, uh, the similar kind of compositions in most of them. But yeah, Inception in particular, I think, cause it had its sort of Inception at his uh, boarding school. He'd sort of dreamt the plot up while he was there. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I sort of think like, I mean that that it's he I sort of pressed him on that as to sort of why that architecture would be so, you know, why he would return to it, you know, and it's there in Interstellar a little bit as well. Um, mm. And he didn't, you know, he didn't really know. I mean, it's sort of <laughs> it's, but I did, you know, certainly I've read other accounts of other borders, and 
you know, I mean, essentially it was his home for like, you know, five, seven years. Um, uh, so yeah, of course it's going to figure in, uh, the kind of, some of the sort of architecture and structures you make movies about. I mean, it's weird. I had a similar, while I was sort of looking into that, I had a similar breakthrough with realizing that Kubrick did much the same thing. Cause I was, I was struck by how similar that, that composition is to a lot of Kubrick shots, you know, mm-hmm. he, Kubrick too loves that very kind of, um, Center vanishing points, vanishing points, symmetrical composition, uh, repeated forms disappearing into the distance. Yeah. And, you know, and I, you know, there was a, when he was a teenager, the house they lived in the Bronx, um, was on a stretch of, of, of street that was modeled on the Champs-Élysées in, 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 uh, in, in Paris, um, which is going to get very kind of, it was very architecturally kind of grand. Okay. And when you kind of prowl the corridors of that apartment block that the Kubricks lived in, it's a little bit like kind of going down the corridors of one of the hotels that appear in his work, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you kind of feel like you want to do it with a kind of steady cam shot and you think, well, yeah, you know, that's kind of where Kubrick discovered his love of photography. And so it makes sense. Um, yeah, I, you always think of Kubrick as the father or the current model of wide-angle lens, too. And the, the, those are always going to get enough of a background into where you want to design your compositions to go toward, you know, show, like like you said, have the vanishing point or have the lines going, the parallel lines going in. The other thing I was thinking about with the um, the book is I, maybe it was just the biographical details, but I was thinking that Nolan hasn't given a lot of information about himself, which is funny for a, a filmmaker who has uh, what three or four movies where there's strong interpretations where the lead character is dressed like him exactly and looks very similar to him. You have two movies where a main character is named Cobb in it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's, I had this feeling that he hasn't given that many interviews, but at the same time, I mean, you've been doing a ton of interviews or these um, like Zooms uh, for the book release with him, usually in conjunction, right? Like he does do a lot of interviews. He does give a lot of information. Do you, As an interview subject, was he, did you have to do a lot of digging to get, or was he close to the vest on stuff or was he giving you similar answers or did you feel like you got a lot of good information on or did you have to keep pushing out of? Um, well, yeah, I mean, he joked when I first met when I first met him again to talk about the book that he was the most visible reclusive director in America. You know, so that's his way of that's a great know, description, right? You know, he gives a lot of interviews, but he's also kind of perfected that self cloaking sort of trick that a lot of Englishmen have of kind of talking without giving away much about themselves. And so I was going to ask if it was a British thing. Yeah, I th- I think a little bit. I mean, he um, uh, so. I mean, I was sort of sensitive to that. I mean, I kind of, I sort of understood. I didn't, I didn't kind of go in pressing. I didn't, you know, um, uh, but, but the thing is he, over time, did give me a lot of his time and uh, we kind of acclimatized to one another. And, you know, a lot of it for me was just returning to things that I found interesting um, and him agreeing to kind of go back. And, you know, so I, I think of the book as being kind of layered up um uh of all these sort of different 
sort of interviews. So one topic I might return to several several times, and that was really how it kind of. That's I, I guess that's kind of where I got the greatest sense of advance, anyway, on the kind of pre-existing information. I mean, that and just, as I say, just using the films as a roadmap, really, and sort of thinking, well, what are the films about? Um, yeah, okay. Well, how long were the sessions? And, I mean, you were going out to L.A. on most of these, or were yeah. many of these phone call session marathons? Or Yeah, I mean, I would go, they were sort of, basically, they would be long mornings, like three hours from nine till sort of lunchtime, and I went out there and, you know, rented a, kind of small memento-ish apartment um sort of in the locality and and so we got into a sort of routine and so in the so we'd do maybe three days of a week over a kind of two-week period and then I would go away and then I would come back again um but there I would say yeah I mean we definitely sort of put in a fair number of hours and um uh and I, you know I really had to just be prepared for let the conversation go where it wanted to go I mean he's very um uh, he's got a very kind of, unsurprisingly, a kind of mazy head, <laughs> and uh, a sort of sort of labyrinthine approach to, you know, things. Co- subjects connect up with other subjects, um, and sort of the thing I learned to do is just to kind of go with the flow a little bit and not try and direct the conversation too much, but just sort of literally just go, you know, down whichever sort of rabbit hole appeared to be nearest um and uh you know and in the end that kind of gave me a little bit of the structure of the book too like I just had to kind of learn to kind of allow the book to be a bit mazy you know too and not to kind of worry too much about where it was going to end up um but yeah I mean he's very punctual we met at nine every morning um I think that I I remember that detail in the book yeah (laughs) um which I always thought was very interesting like he's very observant of time um you know, uh, people associate, I think because he plays with time so much, um, you know, you, you don't quite know what that's going to be in human terms. Like what's he, what, what's that person like? Um, well, actually that person is exceedingly punctual. Like in other words, he doesn't play around with time. Time is, he is very observant of, um, uh, of time. And the, the, the amount of time he gets to shoot a movie is also a kind of great discipline that he's kind of learned to abide by. So when it runs out, he runs it. He doesn't plead for extra time or reshoots or, you know, director's edition or, you know, it's sort of the, the end of the movie is the end of the movie. Um, that that definitely surprised me. You said that either, I don't you meant objectively that he was a fast shooter or that he prides himself on being a fast shooter or at the very least always under schedule. But it fits. I mean, even yeah. if these are you know, $150, 200000000 million movies. Like, he seems like he's a fiend for pre-production, too. Like, his pre-productions have to be massively epic, and they're not ready to shoot until every detail is figured out in pre-production. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it compares to other... I mean, certainly in comparison to other directors in that kind of franchise world, I think his pre-production is kind of feels quite luxurious. Um, you know, when you think about... The amount of pre-production that someone will get if they're doing a superhero movie it's not that long um i don't know what the sort of figure is but yeah i mean the pre-production the the, the areas where i sort of focus the most in the book were on the pre-production and then the post-production because essentially the rule of the book was i was only get to talk to him i wasn't going to talk to his collaborators or anybody else so it wasn't going to be one of those kind of gossip on the film set kind of books um so okay so what does that give me okay well that gives me essentially all his prep and then it gives me all of his 
you know, editing and music after he's shot it. Um, so although there's some account of production in it, it's pretty skimpy compared to most film books, which where pre-production is almost the only, you know, thing you're seeing. That, it's a big point of pride I make on this show is specific, being an editor. Like, I, I, I shortchange pre-production a lot. I give you that. But I hate the way the entertainment press only fixates on production and what the actors the stories the actors have in production so i appreciate that i you i the the lee smith um asides in the book i i appreciate it as well too and the han han zimmer him and han zimmer's relationship i find endlessly fascinating and i felt like you illuminated a lot on that too yeah i mean i that was the one that i wasn't expecting i didn't there was certain surprises in the book where and one of them was the importance of music. I didn't know going into it that was going to be such an important thing. You know, it gives the book its sort of title and, you know, like, but yeah, mm. and it was, but I realized perhaps belatedly that, you know, he just has this very unusual method of working with his composers, mostly with Hans Zimmer, evolved with Hans Zimmer. Uh, but I think he'd started it with David Julian as well, um, which is he involves them in pre production. So it doesn't come to them with a finished movie and says, write a score to fit the cuts I've, you know, I've made here. Right. He asks them to score the film frequently. I mean, my euphemism for it was blind. I and mean, he's asking them to, to, to score the film blind. They don't get to see it and they don't get to sort of, you know, but they are given the script or they're given some ideas about a character, as in the case of the Joker. And they're told to go away and experiment for sort of, you know, six months or whatever it was that Zimmer did. Um, and then they come out of it with Zimmer will come back with a kind of a, uh, a sort of an array of options, not a finished score, but an array of options. And, you know, and then Nolan and he will go through them and Nolan will pick out this, this and the other. So he's kind of almost a co-composer. I mean, he's sort of um, he's having the, 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 the Joker's theme was selected by him. Um, it was composed by Zimmer, but it was selected from all these many, many options by, by Nolan. So he's making kind of creative choices. So he's very much in on, involved in the kind of creative process of the music behind the films in a way that I hadn't really sort of seen that with other filmmakers. I mean, Spielberg has a very close relationship with John Williams, but there's no sense that he's kind of, you know, in on John Williams's sort of creative task, you know. Yeah, and I think Williams still uh, scores the picture pretty efficiently yeah. too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the the way I sort of saw the the relationship is that, you know, with each movie they made, um, they kind of got closer and more kind of symbiotically kind of related to one another until they get to the point of Dunkirk and they're really there in that picture. You know, it's very hard sometimes to say, to say what's in the sound design and what's in the score. They're very kind of integrated in the image. And the, so, uh, you know, at that point they, they take a break. I think they've kind of, they've brought that, that union to a kind of a high point, you know, they have the apotheosis of that relationship is Dunkirk. Um, yeah, well, that's the one where they're like the just the watch recordings, like uh, how, I mean, there, there's, the, if you have a good uh, music editor, it's typically like much more. It helps to be more integral of a score, especially if you're gonna have a bold score, which Nolan's movies 
the, the scores are as much as the engine as the narrative or the plot itself. Mm. And, but to be that bold and not be that manipulative, you have to find a different way to like, and be cinematic and move it around. You need to like, it's tricky to have a composer give you that many like sketches and color just because they tend to want to perfect something and they don't want to be taken advantage of work wise. And him and Zimmer seem to have like a good relationship, not to mention just how organic it ends up in the final movie, much less, it's just always so fascinating how they, they talk, he talks about these uh, ideas of like like the ticking clock and they and make their way in. And, and I mean, I'm sure they intuitively felt that way through the process, but it feels like they came up with this idea on day one and it just so brilliantly came into the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think on the Dunkirk one, I mean, although the, the um, you know, the score and the, the picture are very integrated, I actually, I gather that the process was pretty painful. I mean, of all of them, I think that that was the most painful for Zimmer. I think there was a lot of cursing, you know, um, uh, as they tried to get the two to kind of, you know, to marry. Because um, I think, uh, that Zimmer at first did go away and composed a sort of symphonic score for the film. I think, you know, Nolan said, I want you to think of it as, I think I want to use real sound. So think of a siren and, and, and we want a, a score that kind of somehow revolves around a siren, you know, and I, th- as I gather kind of Zimmer didn't take to this uh, suggestion immediately. And in fact, went off and wrote a, 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 a more traditional symphonic score in London and then he came back with it and they tried to kind of marry it to the film and it just didn't, they just didn't work. They didn't meld. Um, so he had to sort of start not from scratch, but he had to kind of jettison that approach and then come back to the original idea of like incorporating actual sounds as Nolan had suggested. And I gather that that was, you know, towards the end anyway, a kind of fraught process. I think, you know, they're quite, they've been quite. You mentioned bad. that a little in the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the John Cage elements of it has always come across. Was, you also mentioned this detail in the book of, um, was it the Oscars for Dunkirk? Whenever the sound crew won, they made sure to, uh, was it the music editor they made sure to get into there? They included in the, that's correct. Yeah. As part of their kind of win for sound, they included one of the, the music editors who'd been helpful kind of marrying the two. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's on several levels. I mean, the, uh, you know, there, there are sort of sound effects in that movie which are kind of rhythmic and they're used almost as sort of musical elements, like whether it be a sort of siren or the scraping of a boat or, you know, they're, they're, sort, of, uh, they're sort of using those sounds in a sort of rhythmic fashion and it's almost part of the score. And then the other thing that's going on is these kind of great shepherd tone organizational feats, you know. With- I'm glad you brought up the shepherd tone. The shepherd tone is one thing that... Uh, I first learned about through him, through a video of either, I don't know if Nolan was t- explaining how he used it or if someone else was explaining how he used it. But I was still working at a movie theater when uh, Dark Knight came out. And one of the reasons I liked working at a movie theater well into my 20s was whenever there was a crossover movie, a movie that, that was a good movie that got people into the seats, mm. usually there was typically one big moment that I'd always walk into and want to be witness the audience because you would feel the room and like I mean I mean the most obvious one I could think of would be like um uh, when Gandalf dies in Fellowship of the Ring spoiler alert for the 20 year old movie um and but another big one that always consistently got a whoop and a clap was in Dark Knight when the truck flipped and I remember 
after the fact, once I found out about the shepherd's tone and the shepherd's tone being the sound behind the bat pod, there's a strong editorial idea of rhythm and release where it, the shepherd's tone keeps building in the bat pod mm -hmm. and then it cuts off right like a beat before the thing, before the truck flips. Oh, it doesn't. And, oh, it's, it, and you just, every time without fail, when you witness an audience, it would, it gets them every time. And yeah. this is, you, you could talk in theory about why certain ideas might or might not work, especially when you're in the filmmaking process and you re really, it's just like two guys in a, uh, or two, two filmmakers in a room with duvetine on the wall, lightless wall, you know, windows, mm -hmm. but seeing it in practice and it actually works and it works consistently with a room full of like 20, 300, 600 people. It like everything no one says about the theatrical experience works there. And it's, like objectively proven it just it's so cool it was yeah. it's so cool so if i'm if i'm right you're saying that it just cuts out so what you have is actually silence before the crash of the is that correct there's a beat no no it's a very rhythmic silence it goes uh it goes he missed and then it, it cut, cuts off and then there's a strong sound effect of the the truck moving mm -hmm. and it just it busies the ear a little just enough to where you can see what it's kind of it's going on it's 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 going along with the, with the 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 hugeness of the effect mm -hmm. and then there's a the huge sound and where the clap always happened is the shot after where the bat pod does its little flip mm -hmm. and may you can maybe argue that the flip the little is the bow that gets everyone to clap mm -hmm. but i i mean it, it the the one principle in editing i talk about over and over is whenever something doesn't work uh it's not the moment that doesn't work it's the build-up it's the mm -hmm. thing 20 minutes earlier and the opposite is true here, where like when an effect works, you got to give credit to the buildup to mm -hmm. it. And the shepherd's tone on the bat pod buildup, it just creates this tension and it's a rhythm and release. You got the rhythm of the shepherd's tone going up and up and up and it feels like mm -hmm. it just keeps going. And then when it stops, there's yeah. the release of the, the truck flip. It's, I mean, I, it just wor it worked every time. Yeah, I mean, that whole sequence I, from the from the the beginning of the sort of hijack of the swap van through to that. I think you, you point out the music list, how the music cutting out. Yeah. I mean that, that to me was the sort of that was the sequence I watched where I sort of thought, <clears throat> you know, that he had really, he'd, he'd end, he'd kind of submitted to the, he'd almost swallowed the Hollywood machine. <laughs> like, you, you know, like yeah. instead of being a kind of, a, a, a good little machinist turning out his little bit of it, he had somehow, in the way that the confidence of that sequence and the way that he uses silence and takes music out and then it, you know, and, and actually strips everything down, it seems that everything gets smaller as it, you know, you go from like the, uh, the you know, the, the, the Batmobile to the Bat Pod, you know, it, it sheds weight, you know, it, it feels like it's sort of escaping you know, blockbuster overkill. Um, it's actually kind of getting leaner and it's being more stripped down. Like that's the sequence where I kind of feel like there's a mi great mixture of like maximalist effects and minimalist effects going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so it really just feels like Nolan has sort of mastered the Hollywood way of making movies and he's kind of swallowed it you know like, he's like the kind of it always makes me think of like the you know those images of like the anaconda that sort of swallowed the cow and the mm. anaconda is just digesting this huge thing like that for some reason that image always comes to to mind with that i mean that's the film 
that's the sequence anyway that certainly made me, you know, sit up and realize that like, you know, he was finding some element of himself in a way that so many filmmakers don't when they go to Hollywood and make those big movies, they just kind of get swallowed up. Um, and, you know, I sort of thought, oh, no, 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 he, this, it's something in him is getting expressed and released the, with this kind of sense of s the size and the scope of the film, you know, which is unusual. You mentioned, I, I like the way you described it, the mix of minimalism and maximalism, but there is that, I remember when Dark Knight came out, there was that feeling that a major filmmaker had taken the big leap forward. It was like, I don't know, I, I always come back to Kubrick with uh, Nolan, so it felt like, um, I mean, Spartacus and Lolita are great movies, and Spartacus is obviously a big movie, but the Doctor Strange Love 2001, that was that was the era where he, he went another level. And... Uh -huh. Dark Knight. I mean, the other description I liked, I don't know if it was his or yours, but you described the um, story uh, um, st in Dark Knight as uh, uh, an engine. Uh, I don't know if it was a machine or an engine. That's in, And there's an efficiency in it. And, like, it, it works on everything. And it's just, it's so compressed. And it gets across so much, but it just keeps moving forward and forward. Yeah, that's him, I think. Yeah, he described it, he, he, you know, he he um you know he has a slight i detected a slight resentment on his part towards the way everybody has advanced arguments just like the one we've been advancing <laughs> like you know, the people that came along and said no no the dark knight was the movie where like you've really nailed it and turned into the filmmaker that we love uh, yeah it, i mean and i understand it in a way like what filmmaker isn't going to get sure. you know his nose put out of joint by that war what was the matter with the first film you know like so he has this sort of defensive stance towards the first film and wanting to sort of, you know, big that up. Um, but well, when you go back, you do see like, oh, there, it, it's good. It's just everything's clicky. Yeah, that's right. Level. But the, so that description of it, you know, when he's talking about The Dark Knight, he was talking about it in very, I thought, just unvarnished terms. You know, he says, you know, when people talk about my movies being cold, that's the one I, I understand it. You know, because that movie is a cold movie. I, when we watched it, we just thought, said, it's a machine. You know, like, and it's kind of interesting. Like, if he, That's cool. that kind of candor is, you know, is the Bennett, you know, is what we get because it's the underside of his resentment. Like, he, he's willing to kind of just talk about it in such sort of bold terms because he's trying to undercut slightly some of the, 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 the reverence around it. And I like that. I, you know, I, I love that answer. It's kind of like when Lucas, uh, after he did Star Wars, when it, and he was upset with uh, all the money he put into ILM, said like, oh, the shots were only 85, or was it, he, he had this low percentage, like the shots were only 15, 50% of what I wanted them to be. Yeah. And then in Empire, they were closer. I mean, yeah, which sort of, and that all that makes me think is like, thank God, you know, he only got 50% of what he wanted. Like, I prefer <laughs> make a, to work within the box. And like, he's, Nolan is such a good example of that because... You know, he's the thing that he really keeps, you know, would reiterate to me was um, that he really likes working within a set of constrictions and he likes the discipline of of having to persuade um, uh, the studio, you know, to kind of part with the, the money, you know, the budget to make the film. Um, you know, he sort of likes the fact that there are limits on his sort of power and that he has to, you know, still persuade people. 
And I kind of like, I thought it was interesting to me. I sort of, you know, I think particularly after The Dark Knight, actually, because that was the movie where he pretty much could have done whatever he wanted after it. And you sort of sense that, yeah, that probably was quite a dangerous time for him as a filmmaker, or it would have been for, for you know, for a lot of filmmakers anyway. They make a great big hit. Um, they make a billion dollars. The movies, the studios say you can do whatever you like next. And traditionally, that the next film would be the one where they fall on their face. Um, and, you know, the fact that he didn't, the fact that he comes back with actually, with, you know, the film I actually, re, re, you know, regard as the one I'm fondest of, Inception, I mean, to me, that really was quite extraordinary. Like, and that shows enormous discipline. Um, uh, and, you know, and it shows him not like making life difficult for himself, but trying to kind of keep a set of constrictions around, you know, like still being disciplined enough to go through kind of rewrites on that script with DiCaprio until it was kind of exactly right. And uh, yeah, I mean, and it, it shows, I mean, I, I think of it uh, less on the commercial side, but on the critical side, like uh, the way Pauline Kael described uh, 1900 with Bertolucci, where it was just like, they have to make the bigger movies and, and like, or, uh, we had an episode recently about Eyes Wide Shut, and I rewatched the Kubrick video where he talked about the myth of Icarus. And there's this feeling directors keep wanting to get bigger and bigger. And to a certain extent, Nolan has really straddled that line well, where he, in theory, sometimes, like, you know, Dark Knight, he makes a point of saying, it, like, we didn't have to make it bigger, but Dark Knight Rises has to be bigger. But for the most part, each movie has to find a, a new way of topping itself. And like you said, like, he still, like, the best way to get that done is, uh, you know, proof of concept, like to like convince other people, like this is something that's worth yeah. doing, convince the executives this isn't worth putting the money into. I mean, that said, I'm not sure they understood, you know, a lot of the sort of, <laughs> I think when you talk to, I mean, I, I didn't talk to them for this book, but I have done for previous articles. And I, when you talk to some of the executives who did Greenlight Inception, it isn't necessarily that they understood it necessarily, but they just say, you know, like he went to sort of such enormous lengths to make sure that he was being completely inexplicable and understandable. But I, I think they just were kind of like waving him through more than he thought, you know, like, um, fair enough. But, but yeah, like the, the, the um, I, yeah, I, I think it's weird. I mean, I, he's, he's, he's a, he's an epic filmmaker, but he's at the same time, this kind of very claustrophobic one. I mean, I, whenever I, the only way I kind of could really think about it, the thing, the only way that made sense for me was just to sort of link all these opposites. So, you know, you know, his, his characters are often, you know, finding freedom in constriction, you know, so it's when they're in jail that they're actually at their most dangerous. His villains are their most dangerous when they're in jail normally. You, I remember, you you had that part in the book. I remember finding an interesting observation because I remember after Dark Knight did it, then you had all like multiple big IP blockbusters doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Avengers and Skyfall all do the exact same thing and put their villain in, get captured in the middle of the second act. Right. And, you know, and then, and then conversely, the opposite of that is you have a number of characters and often the heroes who uh, find themselves sort of lost in space. I mean, quite literally lost in space in the sense of interstellar, but sort of vast space tends to sort of imprison his characters and constriction seems to set them free. <laughs> you know, so it's a series of paradoxes that I think have some, it's him. I mean, they're, they're linked in his sort of worldview or psyche. Um, 
but uh, but it but it but the point is it gives him a great advantage when it comes to the handling the kind of epic scope that of each film being bigger than because I think there's something in him that just undercuts you know when he when, if he, he give him a vast canvas he'll just try and flip it you know and I think that that has helped him enormously and so I think Dunkirk is the really good example of that where like yeah you know in some ways it's like the smallest movie he's done in sort of a long time i mean it it feels big because of the way he shoots it but if you take away i mean most of the action takes place on a sort of single sort of couple of you know miles on a beach and it you know and it gets even tighter as it kind of goes on and the script is incredibly short and like that about- i remember being the, the, his first movie under two hours in years that that was pretty notable you know and and again you would have expected after you would have expected at that point maybe him to get kind of bloated you know for the filmmaking to get bloated um so but instead he kind of gives us this kind of very lean sort of second world war movie which is a very unusual thing <laughs> i'm i'm trying to i'm gonna get this wrong the, the Truffaut had this uh, thing. I want to say it was three things, but two of them were cinema. Good cinema has to have intimacy and spectacle. Does that sound familiar? Sounds good. Yeah, is that Truffaut? I've had versions of that. Um, uh, I didn't know. I think there's a third one, and I'm forgetting it too. <laughs> I mean, a gun, a gangster. I don't know. Yeah, it's like an intimate epic. You know, like that's yeah. the the phrase that kind of springs to mind. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I don't know kind of where that comes from, but. It certainly meant that he has been able to sort of string together, you know, this extraordinary run of films. Um, you know, and I have to say, I'm a very, I'm a very, um, what's the word? Uh, I'm, I'm a nervous Nolan fan in the sense that with each film, I'm convinced he's going to fall flat on his face, and it kind of adds something to the thrill when he does, you know, when he doesn't. Um, but yeah, like I definitely um, each time I'm like, I mean, but I can remember before Inception going, this has. You know, this this yeah. work. I just, you know, I feel it. <laughs> yeah, I remember that feeling. Like this is going to be the movie changer cinema. Yeah, um, that's right. And I, and and then to, to actually have it work on that set of themes too, um, which have led so many people astray. You know, again, I just I was very, I was just very impressed by that. Let, let's let's use this to turn to tenant then um have you, what what's been your um approximation of the critical reception to it or a people's reception because the weirdest thing i fa- i found about it is that uh you know p- people feel nolan movies but don't understand them on first viewing typically they but they know what they're getting and they they know the story even if they can't like like you had this great description of these movies are easier to watch than they are to explain mm. um but because we've all been quarantined, the water cooler hasn't existed in 2020 and maybe online so much. So I'm wondering how much that hurt um, people's appreciation of Tenet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's had such an interesting um, kind of rollout and the kind of critical take on it does seem to have been bifurcated completely uh, between those saying this is the kind of the Nolan film to end all Nolan films. And then those who've come out kind of scratching their heads saying, I just did through me, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't follow it. And uh, so 
you know, it's it's curious. I mean, I don't. It's very hard to work out because its release in the U.S. was um, so halting because of COVID. Um, it's a very peculiar film to try and work out whether it was a big success or not. I mean, I think it is. You know, um, they'll probably make the money back. Uh, you got a grade on grade grade on a curve. Here, yeah, too. you know. But I think the kind of the, the question of whether it was a sort of whether it was a sort of big popular hit or not is one of those kind of great impi- it's it's we're going to have to put that alongside the spinning totem in Inception and the the memory lapse in Memento is just one of the big imponderables of Nolan's career. Like we're going to be arguing for years as to whether this film was a his kind of masterpiece or be his Waterloo. Like, and it, you know, people are so, you know, it, it, and at the moment in a very Nolan fashion, it just seems to be both, you know? Yeah. Well, cause you had, um, you, I want, there's one passage in the book you describe, uh, like you talk about, uh, Ryan's daughter or the, the theatrical version of the abyss or 1941 as the movies that end these streaks. Mm. And there's a part of me that wonders like, for those who think of it as his Waterloo, um, does he get a mulligan on this? Like, can he can he get the best of both worlds? Where like um, he learn like he learns from. Okay, one other thing I do want to talk to you about is a thing that's that I love about Nolan, just because I, I think it's bold and it's punk rock. But I also think like for a man who's so technically obsessed, is a odd, almost poke in the eye Achilles heel. The mixed metaphors of. Uh, the clarity of his dialogue of a guy who writes um, scripts that are very you uh, have a lot of exposition delivered by dialogue but a, a filmmaker who's so musical and pushes audiences through uh, the musicality of visuals and the actual music in a very sophisticated way but at the same time they're very logical movies that are hinge verbal back and forth and Every movie, specifically, I think I want to say Interstellar started this. You have those that great passage about the well, you the the viral moment from the book where I first read about it was the um, passage where he mentions that directors had called him about the uh, audio Interstellar, and he was he turned around and was like, "Well, but I think it's a bold mix." And I I watched it yesterday, and to, to me, Interstellar is probably my favorite Nolan movie, but. I have a pretty good sound system, and yeah, it is a bold, bold mix, especially in the subwoofer, like he describes. But um, for a movie that hinges back and forth on you need to understand someone said something that's important, or even just the screenwriting trope of repeating words or quips at different times to mean different things, the le motif of that all, like mm-hmm. you may not get that until like the third or fourth viewing, and that's not uh, a denseness thing. That's just a clarity of a dialogue editor's <laughs> work, like. You know, it's interesting, like there are, there are, you mentioned in Stella and I, I, there's a passage I, uh, in that where, you know, I think there's a, it's interesting, the, 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 the disadvantage, his love of music that builds and he's not cut it, you know, he's not scoring it to picture. So he's not going to be sort of tailoring the volume of it, of, of Zimmer's kind of momentum that he's sort of built. He's not going to press pause on that or halt it to create a little pocket of space around some of the dialogue as, as a filmmaker might ordinarily do. They might literally just sort of just lower everything just to make sure that you hear. Um, I can remember several instances in Interstellar that are like that where 
he's sort of decided to go with what the music is telling him, right? You know, as opposed to the dialogue. And I sort of, um, uh, and then in Tenet, I mean, I think it was, it's sort of, I mean, I didn't quite share other people's, you know, I, I mean, I could hear fine, but then of course I'd read the script, which helped. So, you know, that didn't, um, I'm not the best person to ask about it. Um, I was going to ask, when did you first see Tenet? Uh, like, so I think it was like July, you know, like it was June or July of last year. Um, so before release, but, not, but just before shortly. Release, exactly. Um, but for the book, you know, I just saw clips and I saw, and I read the script, which kind of gave me like a, a head start, if you like. I mean, I will say that I think that the, the masks, uh, I, it may be one of those things where, when we when we inter- when we listen to dialogue on the screen we're not just listening we're actually lip reading we're watching faces as well right right and i wonder how much of it is a kind of panic if you take away the visual of someone's lips moving i wonder if there's a sort of internal sort of panic alarm starts to ring like you've just been denied half of the means by which you normally read what someone is saying and i wonder if that may be added as much to it as anything else in other words you could, I could imagine a mix of that film that was exactly the same, but they weren't wearing masks, and people might come out of it and just kind of going, "Yeah, that's fine," you know, like, um, okay, it's it's sort of it's it's as much the visual information we're getting that leads us to sort of. I can remember a couple of scenes in particular, really, where they're both that you know, Branagh and and he are kind of in these sort of the the mask, and it does it does lead to a kind of, am I pick, am I getting everything? There's a sort of yeah. And he's put a lot of characters in masks before. I mean, I keep coming back to um, uh, the Altman versus Warren Beatty argument over McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where Altman thought uh, Beatty hated the movie because he wanted to remix the whole thing. And Beatty came back and said, I just want you to remix the first reel to acclimate people. Because what I've had in the past is the one the one movie I worked on that had a studio buy it eventually, they came back uh, later and they remixed the first reel. And the thought, thought behind it was huh. that if you can get cl- clarity for the first reel, uh-huh. then people will acclimate to it. And what typically happens in an editing room is um, you get so used to it, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so you assume everyone will know what it uh-huh. is. And, but at the same time, proof of concept still applies. And no one seems very vigilant about... Um, audience uh narrative they he seems like to show these movies to people and make sure that they get the narratives i i was wondering do, do you think the movie how much did, was he able to show intended to people before while in the pandemic and if he was able to show it less than normal do you think that might have hindered certain like post elements i mean like did, did he was working with a new composer he's working with a new editor um just all these new things coming on on top of the fact that like he's finishing posts in a very unfortunate circumstance. Yeah. Unique one. I don't know. I mean, my, I have to say I'm sort of, you know, not, I don't have any kind of privileged information on that because I sort of said, I mean, the last time I sort of met him in person was literally in the, in December of 2019. And he was then uh, mixing editing rather tenet and, you know, nobody had even heard of COVID was, you know, there, there were a couple of cases in Wuhan at that point. Nobody was paying it the slightest bit of attention. And, you know, and I kind of saw what I could see. I read the script. I, we had our interview, you know, we shook hands and I kind of like 
I bade him farewell. And that was the last in my last interception of like the production process. Um, so everything that happened after that, um, uh, in terms of the way the movie was finished and the conditions in which it was finished and so on, um, you know, I read about like every, everybody else, um, you know, and so I kind of left it sort of at the halfway mark. Um, so I don't really know what the, the answer to that is, but, um, you know, but I do also think there's another factor, which is he's sort of, you know, a tenant is quite a noisy movie. There's noisier than Inception is. Um, uh, there's sort of, am I, I think, am I, is that right? It just feels like it feels to me like there's more gunfire and explosions, but maybe that's wrong. But it, no, okay. um, more heavy machinery. But the, but then there's the train. I don't know. Well, anyway, there's a mixture of things. It's an action movie, but at the same time, it's this high concept action movie that requires exposition. And in Tenet, for some reason, they come in the same scene. So you'll have in, in you'll have exposition at the same time as the action a, a lot of the time, which means yeah. that they're sort of shouting it. In Inception. Because of the heist movie setup, they had the luxury of those fantastic scenes in front of the blackboard where they say, here's how it's going to work out. And it's totally quiet. There's no competition. So we can all just sort of drink it all in. You point uh, out that that's what a heist movie does. Half the uh, fun is the exposition scenes. Yeah. Whereas with Tenet, he had a sort of different challenge, which is, you know, it's an it's more of an action. It feels to me more of a sort of a, you know, an action movie. And there's sort of, uh, yeah, so the exposition has to be literally just shouted over the top of the of the machinery, you know. So... That to me sometimes also kind of I think explains why people have difficulties. I mean, I, the other thing I like with uh, Tenet though, uh, one of our past guests, uh, our guest host Kyle Smith, made, uh, told me this thing that he he had a challenge to see of major filmmakers how many of have you seen every single of their movies twice at least. Not and he didn't he didn't want to count like obscure shorts mm. and. Uh, the only ones I had were uh, Kubrick and Nolan was a close second and Tenet's the only one I haven't seen the second time. And I wonder if I need multiple viewings. I, 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 I braved the, I, like there was my first movie back and felt weird watching it. I wasn't in the happiest time to watch it just cause I felt very mm. exposed and, and the theaters have felt safer since then. So maybe, mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want to give this guy the benefit of the doubt because it's been rewarded in the past multiple, multiple times. Yeah. You know, he, well, we talk, you know, a little bit about like what he calls, you know, his attempts to make sure that it's palindromically correct. I think he used mm, that phrase mm. in the book, which is to say he felt when I sort of left him, he, he, I, I, he, I felt like he had 101 uh, counter arguments for every objection he felt that was coming, you know, uh, and, you know, and I feel certain that, like, on some level, he's kind of worked it all out um, in a way that would sort of defeat people coming at him with, like, well, what about this or what about that? You know, um, but... Filmmakers tend to do that. I, I yeah. love that exchange you had in the book with him about uh, the plot holes you found in Interstellar, the things you didn't like about it. And he finally just says, well, maybe it didn't work for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll say my my only contribution to this, I think, that's kind of relevant is I actually think that the, the, the confusions of the plot are actually rather come from the same source as Interstellar, which is his fondness for antagonists who are entirely off screen. Um, hmm. uh, in Interstellar, it's the future, you know, the five dimensional beings who construct the Tesseract and place it there 
for you know for Cooper to to kind of find his way, which feels to me at least very much like the author interfering in his own movie a little bit. Like it just feels like the hand of God has come down and sort of placed this kind of wonderful thing that enables him to escape and save the day. And the the tenant has the same set of antagonists. They're sort of the bad guys here, but it's those people in the future that are essentially plotting the whole film. And I think that off these this I think it gives him yeah. enormous latitude in terms of it gives him great control of certain elements of the plot, but without the kind of accountability that comes with actual dramatic char- presences, characters who have to defend their patch. And, you know, like there's a kind of, there's a, there's a it level, it's a level playing field when the, when the, when the, 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 the people plotting the movie actually have to appear in the movie too. Yeah. Um, and or Branna just having the nihilist world ending blonde movie motivations. Yeah. Whereas if they're off screen the entire time, they're not really dramatic presences really. And they can be made to do whatever you really want them to do. And so I, I sort of sense that there's a, there's an authorial hand at work sometimes. And so if, if I had a single, you know, thing to say, I would just don't do off screen antagonists anymore. <laughs> Well, okay, I, I want to bring one thing up because I mentioned Interstellar, I think is my favorite, and I rewatched it yesterday. And in the book, you mentioned the feeling that um, the five dimensional beings at the end are the gods and the machine. And like, I had this confusion from my very first viewing that helped me out where I just, he keeps saying, um, it's us, it's us doing this over and over. Mm-hmm. I just assumed it was human beings from the future. Well, I did too. I think there's a, you know, there's a, I mean, I, I think I went with the, f- <clears throat> yes. And, and it's helped by the fact that the movie ends with um, every other human, like the, everyone on the station is too complacent to live the life they have. And yeah. he still has to go out and explore a little more. And it, and it, yeah the nature of the ending you know i i think there's a bit of blur i think it's isn't it both i mean i'm sort of assuming it's the sort of our future selves are these vibes yeah i i you know i certainly wouldn't counter what you know that explanation that you've just given i mean um i mean listen i i also love interstellar i you know the thing i had to say you know you know, to him, I was trying to sort of just, I was saying that even though there were certain things where I sort of sensed his hand a little, a little bit more in it than perhaps than I do in other films, um, uh, you know, but I still love it's sort of the emotions of the mm. film. And I still, you know, love that sort of opening act. And I also love, you know, obviously the, the um, Cooper's disintegration in front of the video screen, which is just stunning. Yeah. God, that was a kid. <laughs> and I, McConaughey's performance in general, just because like yeah. he, he was, he, I don't know if that it completely goes against the, uh, um, there was something about like a less, uh, like a lower class feeling. There was less the, uh, suit and tie, smooth operator feeling and just more raw emotional, uh, that just really blended well together yeah. in the movie. I mean, to me, it resonates like it just in that film, that, that sense of, you know, grief and loss and sort of loneliness and and it's a new i when i first watched that it's like i just experienced a new emotion <laughs> like it was a strange sort of compound of uh, other emotions that i kind of would name 
abandonment, loneliness, loss, grief, and then also a kind of amount of certain amount of terror, uh, you know, at the, the vastness of time, and all those things are all mixed in in this sort of new compound, and it's very it's haunting, really. I really remember thinking coming out of it and thinking that I have never experienced that before. And yet I kind of know what it is. You know, it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I'm connecting with that man and I sort of know what he's feeling. I think I can guess what he's feeling. And like, and it, none of us have ever been in that situation. And it's sort of, uh, yeah, I must admit that is very, that's really him at his best because that's like memento. Like I've never been an amnesiac and I've never, my wife hasn't been killed. And like, uh, what amazes me is like so many people like just jump into that guy's shoes. We just jump. We just know instantly like everything he's thinking and feeling, even though his experience couldn't be more off the beaten, you know, track, like it couldn't be more unusual. And yet yeah. we all of us kind of like connect with something in there. And it's so interesting to me, like all, you know, the idea that his sort of life is sort of running backwards. I mean, I think for me, at least the feeling is, I think I've, I've definitely felt out of my depth in something. I, we've all felt di- unbalanced. We've all felt disoriented and, you know, in a sort of a hostile situation. And that's a feeling that I think he bottles, you know, he just totally nails that in Memento. Um, and uh, at least that's kind of what I think uh, people are connecting to. But also just how smart he is too. He's just sort of trying to solve his problem and he's such a, a polite fellow <laughs> Leonard um your heart just goes out to him you know like he doesn't um, have a moment to really complain about his situation too much he's just rushed off his feet you know um so yeah it's a very it's a you know when I think about the I mean the one thing that I don't buy is this idea that Nolan isn't emotional like I mm, no I'm totally with you on that yeah totally. like the emotion is definitely there you know um uh, Especially again, I come back to Kubrick. If you if you want to take two big uh, uh, perfectionist, technically adept filmmakers that are called cold, mm. one is not one of these one of these directors is not like the other. Yeah. Like no one's. Well, I mean, like um, in Interstellar, you compare. Well, time seems to be the thing. Like the just that time being out of control. Like you you mentioned the. Uh, um, uh, the uh, there's the one scene in Boyhood that you compared to some of the stuff in Interstellar and like it's or I find that that one to be the most personal just because it seems like he's having a conversation with his kids that are mm. that are his age and that he knows that they're growing old and he, as a parent he you know th- his life is theirs it's, it's I find it very touching um you brought this up I don't you mentioned it briefly in the Prestige chapter but was there any conversation about the um dead girlfriend dead wives dead fiance dead women trope no i didn't actually no we didn't talk about that um it was curious i was sort of i was definitely aware of it and i um and i sort of found that there there was a little bit of me that rebelled against wanting to go to him with the sort of top 10 issues that people have with what twitter wants to know about it yeah like i like i i had a I made a pack. I made a decision with myself. I wasn't going to ask him about what happens at the end of Inception, and I wasn't going to ask him about my <laughs> wife, and I wasn't going to do the kind of top five, you know, things of his. Um, and I don't know quite what that, why that was. I think it's because I found pretty quickly that he's, as an interview subject, he's the most well defended around those issues. Okay. Um, so if he's heard it twenty times, 
yeah, he's got an answer for you. You know what I mean? So I, a bit of me was just like, I'm just not interested in hearing his fit, his his twenty first rebuttal of this point. I'd much rather ask him something that he hasn't been asked before, or at least try use your time properly. Yeah, like so that that's sort of maybe what it was. Um, but you know, I mean, but it's sort of true. I mean, but I don't. I mean, I think at the same time, there's stuff in the Prestige which um, suggests to me, you know, I can tell that the man who made that is married um, and uh, has had to juggle work and family life. Like the main theme of the film when it comes to the Sarah subplot and, you know, uh, Rebecca Hall and (coughs) is how much these men divide their lives between their work and their personal life, their family life, like he's dramatizing something that's very, that's personal to him. You know, like, you know, like he, he has had that. That's, that's, that to me. And you can tell, I think in the weird, particularly in actually in the Rebecca Hall performance that, you know, I mean, I love that. I actually love her performance in that film so much. because You really feel like this is just a breath of fresh air. Like this girl is just this breath of fresh air. And, and she's sort of, she brings this sort of dose of emotional honesty to these to, to Christian Bale, um, and he's never even considered it as an idea. And I love that. I mean, I sort of, and so yeah, I sort of do think of the Prestige as being a kind of an advance, certainly in terms of his female characters, and um, you know, she's fully rounded, and you know, she has loves, and she's funny, and you know, I, yeah, I. I uh, well, at the prodding of the book, that was one of the ones I had seen it when it came out a few times, but I probably haven't seen it since theatrical. So I watched that this week. Yeah. And what you talked about with the work family relationship really like would 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 we bug me about it, which seems like Nolan's completely different per, in a personal space right now. So much of that movie is about the obsessive need in the work that ends up destroying the families around them. And I just don't see But It's like um, Spielberg can't make close encounters right now. He's changed as a family man. I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I want to wind down. I One part, one question I was going to ask, you had a cameo with Glenn Kinney, who had also been on the show. Oh, and yeah. He was, he had the, because uh, what was funny about the scene is like, you, you talk about, um, you, you brought a bunch of people to measure time with uh, Tootsie. Oh. And um, at the end of it, you mentioned Empire Strikes Back. And Empire Strikes Back is one of my, it occasionally is my favorite movie. I mentioned it's my favorite movie of all time. Hmm. That timeline has haunted me forever <laughs> on that movie. <laughs> it's He got me thinking, like, uh, you know, this idea that, like, you can't really nail down how much time has elapsed in the characters' lives in the course of a film. And at first I was a little suspicious of it, and I thought, well, that's got, that's got to be... That can't be true. I mean, there are, obviously there are films where you can tell with a stopwatch. Um, but yeah, Empire Strikes Back turned out to be one of those films where I kind of looked at it and I, and with his, you know, skeptical eye about timelines, and I suddenly realized that I just had no idea, like, how much, that, what I saw, what I think, I, in, what I saw in Tootsie, I think is going on in Empire Strikes Back, which is there are multiple timelines operating in any given movie. And in fact, they're wildly disparate and cover different periods, but they were, but they're never put together in a way that explicitly puts them in opposition to one another. So, if the the audience, it never becomes an issue for the audience. 
you know, but there are bits of that movie that seem to take months, others that take years, you know, like it's very, the Jedi train, the training to be a Jedi really ought to be over a period of, yeah, you know, what? I mean, I, I, the closest, I, at one point I came to the conclusion that when um, they escape the, the asteroid belt and go to um, Bespin, mm. that trip had to have taken six months off screen. That's exactly that, right. that was the closest I came, but uh, with, uh, with Tootsie, it's just like, it, it's, it makes emotional sense, but th- that that movie makes sense at all with how it was made and how overwritten it was by so many different people. Like, yeah, that seems to be the reason. And it's a miracle the, that movie came together. The real, the, 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 the Jenga piece that brings the whole thing down for me, once you start thinking about it, which is not to say I don't enjoy the movie and it totally works, but the Jenga piece that has its most troublesome for me in that in Tootsie is Terry Gar, who is strung along by Dustin Hoffman's character for, a long time she thinks that she's dating him um yeah and uh uh and that's that misperception uh can only take a matter of weeks really how long can you seriously go under the illusion that you're dating someone uh without actually having seen them or kind of regularly sleeping well them? and as you point out in the book like how long does it take to become a, a star in 1980 yeah on, on a soap opera that's right and so it takes you know we sort of figured out that maybe he's on that could be nine months or so and maybe the romance with jessica lang you know which but ideally if you were doing that as a rom-com you'd probably shorten that it wouldn't be nine months but the you know but certainly like at least nine months for the for the for him to become famous and at least you know to get on the cover of magazines and to have his contract come up so that it needs to be renewed um, in which case, Terry Gar just looks like the big idiot, you know, like a one up. Yeah. Thinking, like she thinks he's dating her for nine but, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't even bother you because when Terry Gar comes back into the picture, it just sort of, what happens is it just sort of speeds things up. It's just like you're back on Terry Gar time and you're back on sort of this fast framework. And yeah, that's a good way it's just it. like a car changing gear. That's how you interpret it. You don't really sort of think, oh, I'm going to try and mathematically make this fit. You just kind of go, oh, things have sped up. Well, so it just uh, the I mean, the, the one thing Nolan seems to nail is that uh, whenever you want to, even though he seems to be a logical guy, whenever you want to add logic to a movie, if it feels right, if you you can't argue with that, if it feels right, but the if is a big part, and it takes a long effort and a lot of trial and error to get a movie to feel right too. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, yeah, I mean he's he's the first our first encounter with him feels you know like we came out feeling like kind of chess players a little bit like you know his films reward they were i mean memento is so unusually intelligent that's almost the first the headline when you come out of that film is my god that film feels smart when did you see following uh oh god because i was pretty late to the game i mean i think a lot of people would have had to have been yeah i certainly saw it after memento i didn't see it before Memento. um I probably saw it after Batman Begins or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of, it's, you know, I think because that was the headline for so long, it, it, it took a while to realize that there were other things going on under the bonnet. Yeah, no, you don't say that here, do you? You say uh, the hood of the car. <laughs> uh, the, um, there, there are other things going on there, um, you know, uh, with regard to the kind of the emotional sort of weight of the, the, the films. And But retrospectively, it gets a little easier to spot, you know, um, because like if you're not connected to them emotionally, you're just not engaged. I mean, 
a movie that genuinely is cold, that genuinely has no emotion, that the the, the, the viewer has no emotional connection with, is actually a movie they're bored by. Like, sure, it's a, it's an unengaging movie. That's the movies right. aren't about engagement. If if you're hoping that that guy doesn't fall off the plank, you're emotionally engaged. If you hope that guy gets the girl, you're emotionally engaged. You know, like it's it's a it's really just a question of what you mean by emotion really i mean i, I guess maybe some people think well it has to be would have to be a norafron movie or it would have to be like a you know for it to qualify as emotional but yeah you know dunkirk i agree with him like there's plenty of emotion in that in the in the film um i i, I know i have some friends whenever they send me cuts of stuff to watch they always ask me about pace and every time without fail i'm like i don't give a shit about pace all i care about is do, do i know what's going on right like they, did, did you get your details clear yeah and, which is why i was so harping on the um the dialogue but um Have you ever made the comparison? I mean, you have this really brilliant uh, point in the book where everyone compares uh, Nolan to Hitchcock, but you think he's more like Fritz, Fritz Lang, which I thought in terms of like, um, you know, um, high design, but can make spy movies at the same time, I thought was really adept. But I did want to talk about his wife, Emma Tom, uh, Thomas. Hmm. Um, do you see a Hitch, uh, uh, Alma Hitchcock uh, relationship there. I mean, she's not in post or anything, but he mentions that she's really essential in casting and story too. Mm -hmm. And, and I, my friends that are, are like, uh, have husband and wives that are filmmaking teams where the, like the, they are formidable. Like they are, they, yeah. I think that she's definitely like the, the unsung kind of hero of that squadron of people, you know, the, the crew that he's gathered around him, all of whom have had, you know the spotlight shone on, sh 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 you know, shone on them at some point, but she hasn't. You know, and I actually think that's one of the things I wanted to rectify a little bit is just sort of, you know, to make sure that she was in it because, you know, enough. Um, because he does talk about her influence a lot. Um, she does talk to, her, you know, talk about her as being uh, an important voice on, you know, his screenplays, the first reader of his screenplays gives him input on them, um, you know, casting decisions. Uh, and yeah, I mean, she's a sort of, she, she's the, you know, the, does the sort of producer role. And he said that he tried, you know, to, he, I think which one, I think it was Batman Begins where he stepped out of doing producing just in order to direct um and and then found that didn't really work that he needed to be working with her i think what the the, the thing that they have you know the thing i was talking about the discipline you know like this kind of mm -hmm. this this almost inhuman discipline this ability to bring in the films ahead of budget or on you know uh, sorry ahead of schedule and under budget and to respect the time i think by being married to your producer, you are almost baking that into the cake because that's the producer's job is to sort of crack the whip and say, no, you can't have that second aircraft. You're going to have to do with one. Um, and by being married to your producer, you're essentially making meaning that from the very get go, you're thinking economically, you're thinking about how to do this with the least, you know, uh, you know, we, we, so to, me, to my mind, that could possibly be the answer to that whole minimalist maximalist issue we were talking about earlier like you know like maybe that's the reason maybe that's the the 
the thing that's allowed him to do that. Um, the two uh, brains with a shared, yeah, shared goal. that's right. Um, so, you know, I sort of, I hear you and I sort of think that like her contribution is kind of, um, is one I was very pleased to sort of, you know, just thread, you know, throughout the book. Um, you know, it is, it is highly unusual, uh, you know, and she's sort of been with him, you know, from the very beginning, you know, every single movie. Um, okay. Um, I guess I got one more question, although I'm pretty positive I know the answer to this. Um, you meant you read a bunch of the early drafts of uh, the scripts before Nolan made his pass on this. You didn't by chance get a glimmer at his Howard Hughes draft, have you? No, <clears throat> I asked him and um, he, for a moment it looked like he might. <laughs> oh. uh, but, you know, I there was a bit of him that I think the same bit of him that likes to keep things secret <laughs> and also the bit of him that like thinks, well, I might want to use that one day. Although I must say, I think he's used enough of it to have dispelled that as a reason. Like he's used bits of it in Bat the third Batman film and he's used bits of it in Inception. I think it would be very difficult for him now to make it for that reason, because, you know, he's he kind of has exposed some of the elements in that script to the light of day. Um, so we have sort of seen some of it to some degree. Well, it um, seems like forever he was saying that was his best script, though. Yeah, that's the that's the one I would if I had an unread script, I'd call that my best one too. <laughs> <laughs> well reasoned. That yes, the, all, the next movie I'm is sure. always going to be the best I'm movie. Sure I mean, he could be, well be right. I mean, you know, it's very. Um, it's got a lot of, you know, the, there are a lot of kind of great sort of themes for him there. And I love this idea that he wasn't going to be treating him as a as a fruitcake, that he was just going to be treating him really as just like a an entirely rational, sane actor. Like, I mean, that in and of itself is kind of like a, that's an intriguing premise for a movie. Like, to, 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 to take Howard Hughes as if he was sort of sane, like, that's that's kind of wild. I mean, uh, I can see perhaps why, you know, maybe the producers were a little bit scared of it, you know, they wrote it for, were a little scared of that idea. Um, well, well, if you take everything 1970s before, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of future works, are you are you um, just, are you sticking with reviewing for now? Or are you starting to think about the next book? Yeah. Because, I mean, like, is there another director on the, the horizon that you're... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I do have an idea for a book, and I, I you know, I, I haven't got to the point where I'm sort of you know talking about it but like but I do have one that's sort of really about m movies and books but in terms of other directors I'd also love to do you know I mean, I'd love to do a woman actually I love you know Greta Gerwig I think she's fantastic I mean mm. um it would be nice to kind of uh to, to do that so I'm really just taking her on to just make more movies so I can kind of <laughs> because <laughs> you know, that was the thing with with Nolan was like oh, I haven't made enough movies yet I haven't made enough you know so I had to wait until he made enough movies um but uh but yeah I mean I I think she's got everything um so yeah we'll see I mean but on the other one yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna say tight lips on the other one I've sort of but I've caught some of his secret his his kind of his secrecy. His, 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 his secrecy. I'm like, oh, see, I, I got to observe it. He was so tight-lipped about Tenet too. I was very, all the time that I was interviewing him, um, there was originally the plan was not to include Tenet because I thought the book was going to come out before the film. And so 
the idea was I would know nothing about the new movie and we, we didn't we didn't talk about it at all and he wouldn't say he didn't say anything about it and the only clue I ever got was that the I think at the very beginning of the process I said to him I just apropos of nothing very much I just said I think you should make a spy movie one day and he kind of went yeah I think I will <laughs> and then, but don't put that in the book he said and I was like that's weird why did he tell me not to put that in the book and then I was like oh because the new movie's got to be a spy movie. And that was the only time he, he I saw his cards, if you know what I mean. And I still yeah. wasn't exactly sure. But there, was, but there was a sort of... But when I read the script finally, when we, finally this, I tripped up on the schedule and I realised this book was not going to come out before the film, so we had to include Tenet. So then I kind of went and read it. And I had this very eerie sensation of, like, reading a, the, the thing... That our conversations had all been edged around, like there was this sort of tenet-shaped object around which we moved and about which we said nothing. Um, but who you have, you have the great comparison of this is this North by Northwest. If Inceptions is Vertigo, yeah, exactly, and it, it, it has everything. It's the the apotheosis of all his filmmaking, exactly, and all its themes had bled into our conversations, but just without him talking about tenet explicitly. So when I finally did read the script, I was like, oh, so that's why we were talking about nuclear weapons. And that's why we were talking about that, that film that ran backwards. And, that, and it all suddenly made sense. Um, but we literally described this kind of, this almost this black hole object. <laughs> and I knew the shape of it, um, uh, but I didn't know what, what it was in it. So anyway, uh, but that's just a way of saying that he managed to kind of go for like a good year without giving me a single clue as to what he was doing. Um, so I definitely saw up close that kind of discipline. Um, but yeah, uh, I caught the secrecy bug. <laughs> I was going to say your next, uh, your next book is going to be codenamed after your daughter's diary or something. <laughs> exactly. Um, Tom Schoen, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for writing this book. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm ready now to go back and just see Tenet one more time.